I was, instead of mother, because my mom's still here, I was thinking my grandpa. And each of you had someone else that you put in that spot in that song, didn't you? Bob, Ken. One day we will see those folks. No more weeping, no more wailing. Soon I will be done with the troubles of the world. That is a great promise, and it belongs only to the believers of Jesus. One of the decisions your session has made is that we are going to share the Chapel Hill story with churches that would like to hear it as often as we can, and I'm ordinarily the, the, the messenger of that story. So last week, uh, I was in Montgomery, Alabama, at Memorial Presbyterian Church, preaching there for our young friend William Vanderblumen, who will in fact return the favor this summer when he's preaching for me during uh, my sabbatical one, one of the Sundays. A young guy who has uh, done a great job of turning a very troubled church around. This is a church that went through not one but two splits with two previous pastors who took a portion of them and left. And you can imagine, I'm sure, the, the pain that they have experienced. And yet, under his great leadership and the grace of the Holy Spirit, in the last two years their membership has doubled. They have moved. They have acquired nine acres of property, built a new family activity center, and they are in the process of preparing to build a sanctuary. Sound familiar? <laughs> William said, would you please come and tell us all the mistakes you guys made so we won't make them? I said, be happy to do that because there's plenty of those. And so uh, I planned to, to preach. I did a preaching series, but I was also going to meet with his session for a visioning time on Saturday. My plan was to meet uh, at, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon Saturday. So I flew out Friday, plenty of time, got on the airplane around noon, flew out, got to Dallas. Do you remember what was going on in Dallas last Friday, a week ago Friday? Thunderstorms. The whole place is just backed up completely. Uh, my plane is already late in arriving, and we are told that there's going to be a delay on the flight going out. I kept going up to the desk. I said, now, I want you to square with me. I can take it. Is this flight going to go out, or should I go ahead and make plans? No, no, the flight's going out to Montgomery. Four hours later, you know the message that came over the loudspeaker. The Montgomery flight has been canceled. Please see. Yeah. So they put us up in, uh, in Howard Johnson. <laughs> Actually... He wasn't even good enough to be a Howard Johnson anymore. It's a Howard Johnson has been. They crossed the name out. And uh, so you're really moving to the bottom of the rung when you're a Howard, a Hojo has been. The next morning I got up, same clothes, put them back on. Flights delayed two more hours. I, I got to, arrived in Montgomery at 1.30, grabbed my bags, got in the car, walked through the doors of the church at 2 o'clock, Dirty clothes, exhausted, complete set of pillow head. You know what I'm talking about? Your hair. The... <laughs> said, I'm your consultant. <laughs> I had actually sketched out a few things that I wanted to say to them, but of all the things that we did, and I spoke seven times when I was there, uh, of all the things that I said, I think those three hours spent were the best because although I had some ideas of what I wanted to tell them, they were hungry to hear the story. They, they were hungry to hear, and all I needed to do uh, in that sorry state in which I found myself was simply to testify to the faithfulness of what God has done in this church, because that's what they wanted to hear. Tell us more about that. And so there I was, poorly dressed, pillowhead, exhausted and all, and God managed to use that in a powerful way. This morning, as we continue in our study of the book of Revelation, we come to a remarkable account of two faithful witnesses. They were very poorly dressed. And they found themselves in a very hostile environment. And yet God used them to save most of their city. The message this morning is entitled, Measuring Up. Measuring Up, not what you find in the bulletin. We had a little snafu. And the text for the morning will be Revelation chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. 
Would you please turn in your Bibles to Revelation 11, verse 1. If you don't have one, please look on with someone near you. Share the word. Hear the word of God. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony... The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. Because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now, O God, speak to us through your word. Witness to us through the witness of these two men that we might be faithful witnesses, that we might measure up as witnesses for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I don't have this in the text, but any guess what the 42 months is all about? How many, how many years is 42 months? Remember I told you every number has meaning in Revelation. They're not statistics, they're symbols. Seven means perfection. Half of seven would be impermanence, imperfection. Three and a half years of torment, but it, won't, it will come to an end. It is not perfect, it will come to an end. It will not last forever. Just like there was an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seals... And now we have so much history, it's hard for me to continue to bring us up to speed. Buy the tapes. That's all I can tell you. Buy the tapes. Just as there was an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal, now we come to the trumpets, and there is another interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And basically, this text finds itself in two parts. In two parts. The first part is a brief scene in the temple, right? A year ago now, I was standing with a bunch of my friends. How many of you were there with me a year ago? We were standing in this spot, the Temple Mount. One of the most fought over, contentious pieces of real estate in the whole world. And if you were a first century Jew, you wouldn't even recognize the place today. On the southern end of the temple stands Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the large, large areas for worship and prayer with some of the most beautiful stained glass windows you've ever seen. And farther north, a few hundred yards, is perhaps one of the most famous um, uh, recognizable Muslim holy sites, the Dome of the Rock. 
Uh, but all of the stuff that you find on this great esplanade, uh, none of it would have been there at the time of Jesus. If you were a first century Jew, it would be quite confusing. Because at the time that John was writing this, well, actually, not at this time anymore either because it had been destroyed by this. But the, 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 the temple that Jesus was familiar with, the temple that John was familiar with, on that esplanade was a set of, of, uh, of, gated, of gated areas, of courtyards that moved inward, inward, and inward. The farther in you went, the more exclusive the club. Until finally you were in the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go and then only once a year. And yet on the farthest extreme, on the outside, the farthest part outside and the largest part of the Mount, uh, the Temple Mount Esplanade was a 26-acre area known as the Court of the Gentiles. That is what we are talking about here this morning, this vision that John uh, is having of this temple, which of course was destroyed in 70 AD, but it doesn't matter because this is a vision and anything can happen in a vision. John would have understood exactly what this text was talking about because he was a man of the word. And his word was the Old Testament. And if you turn to Zechariah, which is more packed full of messianic talk probably than any other comparably sized uh, prophetic book in the Old Testament, you would find all sorts of images that would jump right out of you. And one of them you would find in, in Zechariah, which is the second to the last chapter uh, book of the Old Testament. Chapter 2, you would find this, this story. A man is running on the way, and Zechariah stops him, and he has a measuring line. And he says, where are you going? He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Because I'm going to measure the city because it's getting so large. The inhabitants, we don't think that the city can contain the inhabitants safely. And the response that comes from an angel who stops the man is, don't worry. Because the Lord himself will be the wall of the city. He will be a fiery wall. He will protect the city. He will enclose the city. By the way, two chapters later, you also read about how they are the lampstand, the, the lampstand and, uh, and the olive stand, two lampstand and two olive stands. So this imagery that we find comes right out of Zechariah, and the Holy Spirit is using this to talk to John about something that is yet to come. When we read about measuring in Scripture, you've got to get out of your mind the idea of height, depth. That's not what it's talking about at all. When the Scriptures talk about measuring, what it means is the Lord is setting something aside. I'm going to measure this city, and I'm going to set it aside. Ordinarily, it's for protection. Sometimes it is for destruction. In this case, the, the temple is being measured, set aside, for preservation, for protection. The temple is being measured, and the people, the true worshipers, every one of them, is being counted. This year we're going to be doing a census. That's exactly what is taking place here in a small way. Now, who, who is it that makes up this temple? Who are these true worshipers? Every time you read about true worshipers in Revelation, you are talking about the church. Every time you read this, you are talking about the faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And what we are seeing here is a parallel of what we saw back in chapter 7. Remember that interlude? Remember we stopped for a moment. At the end of six seals, God stopped. He said, before we go any farther, because judgment is about to come, I've got to do something first. What did he do? What did he do to his people? There we go. He put the stamp on their forehead, remember, of all of his people. 144,000. Now, I shared with you why I believe that represents the church. Some of us may be in disagreement. It doesn't matter. Here we are right now. We come back to an interlude to, uh, in these, these chapters that is basically repeating the same theme, which is this. Before God will allow judgment to continue, he sets aside his people. He protects them. This is not to say that he preserves them from any physical harm, but he preserves them from the uh, 
the God-separating effects of evil that are now running rampant in the world. And so just as the Lord set aside 144,000 with a seal on his forehead, now again he tells John, I want you to go out to the Jordan River and I want you to pull up one of those 20-foot reeds and I want you to measure this temple and I want you to count the worshipers because God is about to do a work of protection. He is going to protect them. He has stamped his ownership on them. Uh, he has drawn them into a place of safety. That's the first little part of that reading and what it means, I believe. Here's, though, where the vision gets very interesting. Because suddenly there appears two witnesses. There appear two witnesses. Now, the worshipers might be safely measured inside of the temple proper. But these witnesses aren't staying inside of the temple. They move right out into the midst of the crowd. They move into the streets. They move out where it, it is not safe. And these two witnesses began to preach like you've never heard preaching before. They begin to testify with a power almost unseen in scriptures except from Jesus. And even some of the things that they do, Jesus never did. In fact, he told his disciples not to do it. There were some of his disciples, remember, that wanted to call fire down upon the villages because they did not respond. Jesus wouldn't let them. But this time, they are set free. And these powerful witnesses have the ability to call fire down upon their enemies... Those who would try to kill them, they can destroy them with that. They're able to call down plagues. They can turn the water into blood. They can shut up the sky so that the rain cannot fall the entire time that they are prophesying. Who are these two witnesses? Who are these two witnesses? Any guesses? Think back. Who was it in the Old Testament that had the power to shut down the rain so that it would not fall during his time of prophecy and to call down fire in response to his prayer. Who was it? Elijah. We were on Mount Carmel. And who was it that had the power to turn water into blood and to bring plagues upon a land that was rebellious against God? Moses. Elijah and Moses. The types of the prophecy and the law. Now think back a little less farther. Think back to the very last part of Jesus' ministry. Just before he was ready to go to Jerusalem, remember what Jesus did? He went up on top of a mountain. And he took James and Peter and John along with him. Do you remember? And what took place on that mountaintop? The transfiguration. Jesus became bright as the sun. And suddenly it wasn't Jesus that was standing there. And, and for the first time, his, his three closest disciples and friends have a chance to see Jesus in all of his glory. But it wasn't just Jesus that was standing there. How many more were there? Who were they? Moses, Elijah. You get it? These are the models of the prophet and the law. They are the exemplars of what it means to be faithful witness to God. And in this case, to Jesus Christ in the face of persecution and oppression. Elijah and Moses. The Holy Spirit is graciously speaking to John in images that he has not only studied because he reads the word, but that he has experienced personally because he walked with Jesus Christ as his disciple. And they are called, these two witnesses, to witness for Jesus Christ and prophesy boldly to a world that is going crazy. But suddenly, but not before they are finished with their testimony, notice, God always finishes his work. Suddenly, it seems to us, a beast arises. Where does he come out of? The abyss. Remember, the abyss was opened back in chapter 9. That was where all those crazy locusts came and all that stuff. It's part of the, part of the uh, trumpets. The abyss is opened and out comes the beast. We will meet this beast in greater detail in chapter 13. He is called Antichrist there. 
But for the moment, this is all we know of him. And the beast attacks the two witnesses somehow and unexpectedly kills them, destroys them. In the Middle East, it is the ultimate offense to leave bodies unburied. But the bodies of these two witnesses are left on display in what we understand to be Jerusalem for three and a half days, three and a half days, three and a half, half of seven, an imperfect period of time. They are mocked by the people the world over who are gloating and celebrating their deaths. They even send gifts to each other. It's like a Christmas party. They're celebrating the fact that these pesky prophets who've been slaying people with fire and preaching against the things they want to do, finally they got their comeuppance. Finally, this powerful figure that we know as the beast, he took care of them. And boy, will he show them they're, they're sprawled out on the ground, dead, lying for all people to see. It is the ultimate indignity being heaped upon these two. And then, just when the party really gets going, the life-giving God breathes life back into these two. And these dead bodies who have been laying there for three and a half days rise up like a Lazarus, like a Jesus. And a voice from heaven calls out, Come up here. And these two rise into the heavens just as their Lord had done so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. And upon that, an earthquake strikes that kills one-tenth of the city And the result is the rest of the population, it says that they repent. They, in sheer terror, give glory to God, the God of these witnesses. Wow. Now that's a mouthful. So what are we to make of these two men? Some commentators view this as symbolic of the witness of the entire church. They see these two men as being symbols of the ongoing testimony of the Christian church in the face of persecution. Faced with a world that has gone crazy, where even the holy city of Jerusalem is being overrun by rampant evil, the church continues faithfully to give testimony to Jesus Christ. And perhaps that is so. Maybe they are right. But I need to tell you that the degree of detail in this story certainly raises the strong possibility that John is looking ahead and seeing two actual men. He treats this section differently than he does other passages that might be interpreted figuratively. There is a level of detail that we do not find in some of the other texts. And it could be that these are two great witnesses who will one day testify boldly for Christ, who are killed by Antichrist and who are raised to life again by by the Lord just as the Lord Jesus himself was. Whether or not these are two actual persons, clearly this is a picture of a powerful witness in the face of of powerful persecution. This morning there are two groups of people that I want to look at out of this story. The tramplers and the witnesses. Do you remember when John measured the temple? Was he told to measure the entire entire temple mount? Was he? No, in fact, he was told very specifically, measure only the inner court. And leave, they don't mention the other courts, but he says, leave the court of the Gentiles alone. Why? Because the Gentiles of the world, and and he's using that word there to mean the unbelievers. They are going to trample all over the court, all over the holy city for how long? 42 months. Another way of saying 42 months, 30 day months, is 1,260 days. So in the same time that they're trampling, there's a witness taking place here. 
They, they are told, measure only this area, but give over the courtyard because that is what's going to happen. They are going to be trampling. That's the word that's used. I told you that you ought to look at Matthew, or Matthew 24, 25 if you want to read about what Jesus had to say about end times. Luke 21 is another chapter that you might want to read if you want to see what Jesus says about end times. And in Luke 21, Jesus says exactly this. He says, one day I will give over Jerusalem. It will be trampled by the Gentiles until the age of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. Same word, trampled. Trampled. A couple of weeks ago, our facility staff showed up at church and they noticed that our shrubbery down below the building here uh, had all been destroyed. Someone had walked through all of these tiny little roadies and, and azaleas, and one at a time, they had stomped right in the center of the, of the bush and split the whole bush up and just continued one right after another. Stomp, stomp, stomp right through until they had destroyed it all. This was a trampler. That is the exact image of what we're talking about here. Somehow they were angry at the church. They wanted to prove a point. And so they went down and just did as much destruction with their heavy boots as they possibly could as they tramped their way through the gardens of this church. The world is full of tramplers who want to do harm to the church of Jesus Christ. You know that is so. Even in our own country where the Christian faith is still the dominant faith, there is no other religious group that would tolerate the kind of abuse that has been heaped upon us in recent years particularly by the media. We are the last acceptable whipping boy. In a time of political correctness, we are the ones that can be trampled on with impunity and no one dares raise a word. Christian religious conviction and the influence of Christian conviction has become a a disreputable key issue in the Republican uh, race particularly. And again and again we are pummeled with the term radical Christian right. And that is never said with a smile on your face. We live in a culture of tramplers. But you know what? Tramplers are are not only on the outside of the church. The worst trampling usually comes from within the church. Far more harm is done to the witness of Jesus Christ by those who claim to be his followers than by those who are on the outside. We expect to be trampled on by non-believers. We expect that. But it is when we who claim to follow Christ, we who reside within the temple grounds, it is when we who do the trampling that the greatest damage is done. When we gather to worship Jesus on a Sunday morning and behave shamefully on a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday morning, we have trampled. When we talk about loving our fellow man on Sunday and we abuse our spouse on Monday morning, we are tramplers. When we drink sacramental wine on a Sunday and get wasted on wine on a Friday, we are tramplers. When we pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debts. go home to nurse that bitter grudge against our mother-in-law or against our employer. We are tramplers. Every time we who claim to be worshipers of Jesus sleep with our girlfriend, cheat on our husband, cheat on our taxes, slander our employer, gossip about our neighbor, or make fun of the school loser, we are tramplers. How do you measure up? This text also suggests suggests how we might consider 
uh, to consider how we might measure up as witnesses. In this text, the two witnesses courageously shared the gospel of Jesus. They did so with power and passion and conviction. They did so in the face of persecution, even sure death. Notice they left the safety of the religious enclaves. They could have stayed where it was safe, where it was measured, but they walk out of there and into the streets where it is not safe, where the word must be shared and present the story of Jesus passionately. Apart from the witness of Christ himself, I am not aware of another New Testament image that more powerfully presents the challenge of being a courageous witness for Jesus Christ than this text. So how do we measure up as witnesses for Christ? I am ashamed at times of my lack of passion in my own Christian witness. On the airplane going out to Montgomery, I was sitting next to a man. I managed to get a bulkhead seat, so I had some leg room. I was stretching out. I had my computer out. I wanted to work. I wanted to read. I wanted to pray. I wanted to be quiet. I had four, and a half, or four hours or so to do it, and that's what I wanted to do with it. Guess what my friend wanted to do? He wanted to talk. And so I wanted to be polite, and I tried to talk. And of course, you know what happens, so what do you do? <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a pastor. You live in Montgomery? No, I'm going to go to talk to a church about church growth renewal. Really? He had all kinds of ideas about Jesus and questions that he wanted to discuss with me. So I'm trying to engage this man. Here is an open up. I mean, this is a great opportunity. It's, an, it's a, a bowl ready to be filled. My mouth is talking. My head is saying, will you shut up? I need to plan my talks for how to do evangelism. I, I'm pretty sure I didn't think of it exactly that way at the time. Because if I had, I would have repented sooner of my lackluster performance. Here was a man who was interested in talking about Jesus, and I really wasn't giving it much of a shot to my shame. I know none of you have ever faced that experience before. Now, Friday night, last Friday night, I was reminded of the kind of passion that ought to be present in evangelism. And it had nothing to do with evangelism. Rachel spent the night with a friend, or spent the day with a friend. Cindy went to pick her up at 8.15. She said she was going to make a quick stop at the store on the way back and, and be home shortly after that. So I put Cooper down and was working on my sermon, and suddenly I realized it's 9.15. No Cindy. No Rachel. I become a little concerned. It's dark. It's wet. By 9.30, I'm trying to remember who it was that Rachel was spending the day with because I didn't know. And I'm trying to think who would I call who would know who it was that Rachel was spending the day with. By 9.45, I kid you not, I was on my knees by the bed, literally praying for the safety of my family. And I had decided that 10 o'clock, I was going to get Cooper out of bed, put him in the car, and I was going to go hunting them down. I couldn't raise her on the cell phone. I was a little worried. And 9.58, <laughs> the phone rings, and it is Cindy. She stayed for a visit. She didn't have her watch. She lost track of time, and she was so sorry. And I blasted her. <laughs> you know that if it had been me, what I would have heard. 
Probably not as much as she heard from me. And then in this kind of a sick way, she was really pleased that I was so worried about her. (laughs) The point is, I was ready to go on a rescue mission. I was ready to pack up my sleeping four-year-old boy and go looking for my lost wife and my lost daughter. You would have too. Man, I wish I had that kind of a passion for the lost of the world. Thinking about this over the last week, I have been convicted of it. It is so easy to settle into the comfort of who we are and what we are right now. And I, and I realize I haven't had a passion like I should for the lost. And I began doing something I haven't done for a long time. I began praying this week for the lost of this community. That God would use this church to seek and to save the lost, the tramplers. I have begun to ask prayer partners to do the same. I ask you to do the same. Let us not become complacent with our wonderful big church. There are thousands of souls out there who are lost and they don't even know they're lost. Look at the difference that courageous witness makes in this story. Did you see it? True, uh, 7,000 of them were killed by this earthquake. But at the end of that, what happened? Nine-tenths of the city repented because of the courageous witness and the powerful expression of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these two witnesses. Nine-tenths of the city repented. They turned back to God. Even at this late date in the process of judgment, God is still willing to use the witness of His people to redeem the tramplers. How do you measure up as a witness for Jesus Christ? Better than me, I hope. What if every one of this of us this week determined that we were going to share our love intentionally, we were going to share our love with Jesus with one other person? What if we prayed that before we left? Said, Lord, one person, I will share at least with one person, and I have them in my mind right now. That we would bring one friend to church, that we would pray for one unsaved associate. Let us not become complacent. Let us hear the voices of these two great witnesses and let them stir our hearts for a new passion to seek and to save the lost that Jesus died to redeem. Let us stand together and respond to God as we sing the doxology. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to seek and save us. You sought us out. You did not stay comfortably in heaven where glorious worship was taking place, enjoying the fellowship of your Father and of the Spirit. But you abandoned all of that for our sakes. You came to streets that were unsafe, to a world that was unsafe, to seek us, to save us. Give us hearts that are passionate for the loss of this community. 
and of this world. Give us spirits that remember to pray and have the courage to share. And even right now as we give money, in a sense that is also our testimony because we say that you are important to us and that this witness is important to us and and we are going to support it. So Lord, bless our gift now, multiply it, use it, and bless the givers that we might give with joy and anticipation, eager to see what you are going to do. For we pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.